Good morning. I'm grateful that you guys are, are here this morning. I, I feel uh, filled up with the worship this morning. I really do sense this just being drawn closer to, to Christ as we as a community of faith have, have sung words of truth and, and even been challenged by some of those things and thought about the internal things that the Lord is doing in our heart to to, to both shape us, but just to remind us of, of his presence with us. Uh, all week, uh, after Jared's sermon last Sunday, just been chewing on what he communicated through Nehemiah chapter 4. And, you know, some of the, the main highlights and the elements that just continue to, to challenge me and move me forward in, in my own relationship with Christ is, you know, is, is prayer a, a first option or a last resort? You know, just that sense as I'm walking through life and dealing with things, am I... Am I really seeing an intimate relationship with Christ and, and my, my hope and my desire is just deeper trust in Him through those things or, or do I really feel like I've got an ability to sort of manage, uh, my life on my own? And, and there's that constant war back and forth. And, and then also one of the other reflection points that I had wrestled with was just that often when we think about suffering, sometimes we think about, uh, external suffering as something that is just trying to stop the plan of God rather than actually be something that God is using to move us to the very places that he's he's called us to be. And so seeing a bigger perspective and an understanding of the suffering that we encounter and, and coupling that with with prayer being the, the first avenue of that intimacy with Christ, like there's just a sense of God generating some momentum that I really believe in Nehemiah chapter five and six um, thrusts us forward in a, in a place where my hope, and if you've read ahead, it's okay because you know it's coming, but there's a, there's a softening, I hope, through Nehemiah 1 through 4, where our hearts are really prepared to address the reality of what's taking place in the hearts and minds of God's people in the book of Nehemiah. And I think incredibly and uh, applicable and pertinent for each and every single one of us here this morning. So let me lay my cards out on the table. There's a thought that I want you to uh, digest and something that we're going to continue to wrestle with and, and revisit in numerous different ways in our time this morning. But the church, as you look at it historically and even through the book of Acts, typically thrives with external opposition. Does it not? Like as you look through, not only reading through the book of Acts, it was actually persecution that moved the church forward. You think about the underground church in China and Korea, all of this persecution and all of this control and all these external influences is actually helping the church thrive. But then you look and many of us are aware of just churches that have died. Ministries that have been broken and crashed against the, the rocks of the world and no longer have a voice. Why? Here's the thought. The typical church thrives with external opposition, but it dies with internal selfishness. Yeah, yeah now you know where we're going, right? Like five and six of Nehemiah are this space where God begins to or continues to to get to the main point of what he's addressing in the lives of his followers. Remember, we've said from the beginning, it's not about the wall. 
that God was doing something. And so as they're building the wall, they're, they're growing in resiliency. They're, they're growing in hope. They're seeing God do great things. Relationships are taking place. But let me suggest to you this morning that the purpose of them having success with the wall was to cultivate the ugly, seedy side of sin. And it lives and breathes within the people of God. It's actually nurtured and flourishing in tremendous ways that we're going to see in Nehemiah 5 and 6. The entry point this morning was a a story, not a story, but a thought, kind of a hypothetical thought from a theologian named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And here's what he says. What would things look like if Satan really took over a city? Over half a century ago, the Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barhouse, offered his own scenario in a weekly sermon that has been broadcast worldwide. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. That's how you would know that Satan took over the city of Philadelphia is that you would be preaching a Christless Christianity. And how would you know that a Christless Christianity would be preached? We would be able to have a framework of religiosity and we would understand tradition and desires and we would know how to conduct ourselves, but we would be unwilling to address the issues that exist in our heart. Selfishness would be growing. We would have conversations as though this is not what I like or this is not my desire or I'm not like this other person and the ability to look within and see the framework of the sin that is cultivating and growing and flourishing in our own heart, we would be able to address the sin of others from the standpoint of our own righteousness. Most dangerous thing that we could enter into is a Christless Christianity that doesn't highlight the reality of the gospel. And when I say gospel, here's what I mean. Jesus, his death, resurrection, life, innocence, all of those things were components in which he has called us and realized and and helped us understand that there's an element of transformation that is taking place in our lives and that always, daily, regularly as we meet opposition, challenges, even when we see our own sin and arguments with our loved ones, we would say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I am the chief of sinners. I need change. My sin manifests itself all of the time in how I conduct myself in the context of other people. External opposition begins to show me the internal war that's going on inside. And I have become complacent and apathetic with regards to my own sin because I've said, look how bad things are out there. And I've refused to say, look how dark things are in here. If Satan took over Arlington, we would know because the churches would preach a Christless Christianity. Nehemiah 5 and 6 give us an avenue to to move into the understanding of what God is really getting at in the hearts and minds of people. Because what happens is all of this external opposition, you you begin to see. And the, the most dangerous thing we can do through the book of Nehemiah is say to ourselves, I want to be like them. When in reality, 
What the purpose of the book of Nehemiah is, is not to say I want to be like them, but I want to believe in whom they believe. I want to trust in what they trust. I want to know in what they know. Because it's going to require radical reversal of the way our hearts and minds naturally operate. We just start off with Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 and you'll get a sense of what begins to take place. Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and in our vineyards. Now, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as, as, are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. <laughs> so here's what you get. As they begin to build the wall and and deal with all this external opposition, Nehemiah chapter 4 ends with this, this mental picture of these people who were day and night working on the wall and, and holding spears and protecting one another in those things. And in the process of building the wall, what do they see? There is extraordinary exploitation of brothers and sisters who are attempting to do the work of God. There are those who were opportunistic, taking advantage of one another inside the family of God itself. There is a level of selfishness and self-righteousness that has become so ingrained and embedded in the rhythm of how they do things that they're making honorable decisions to do the work of God and help begin to rebuild the wall. But they're doing it based on their own selfish resources and desires. And they're willing to exploit one another to make it happen. The image of what you get is this deep, dark side of the human heart. Because it's not just them. It's not just that these people got it wrong and made a mistake. And, and, and God can correct it, which he will. And we'll see what he does. But we have to be able to apply the reality of these verses to our own life. And we cannot say it's just them. We have to say this is us. This is what exists inside of my own heart. In arguments with my wife, my spouse or people around me, self-protection, self-reliance, self-righteousness are the normal rhythm that pours out as I experience the things that have happened. I'm the first to say their sin is worse than mine when in reality the scriptures tell me that I need to come to the realization that first and foremost my sin is far greater than the woundings that I've experienced. The darkness and, and seediness and, and fleshliness and things that exist in my own heart I can relate with Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5. I know why they did it. Not because there's some logical explanation as to the reasons how you need to get money to build a wall or how some people, the rich get richer and the poor get poor kind of deal. I know why Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5 makes sense. 
because I understand humanity. And I don't understand humanity in some social theological level. I understand it because it lives and breathes inside of me. And each and every one of us need to move to that reality of what it means to understand that as we are doing the work of the Lord, the disgusting side of sin is uncovered. And I I love that, (laughs) sort of, in the sense that as we begin to follow the Lord and do the things that he's called us to do, there's an awareness that we become much more aware of the things that are operating underneath the surface inside of our own heart. And so it's great to do the work of the Lord. We make wise decisions that the people of Israel are doing the right thing by rebuilding the wall and wanting to honor God and, and dealing with opposition from without. But all of it is for the format of helping them understand that there's something inside that has to be addressed. And that's the desire for our own human hearts to protect ourselves and to take advantage of other people to get what we want or somehow nobilize our intentions to make us feel that we're not as bad as the person next to us. And Nehemiah is not having any of it. And so in the process of understanding the human condition, that humanity is alive and well and inside of each of us, he begins to address these things. And this is critical, is that we can't know the solution unless we understand the problem. The problem is we've got deep, dark, selfish hearts that desire our own longings and our own appetites over and above the transformative work of God. And so he begins to address it. Verse 6, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I I took counsel with myself. (laughs) He was like, I need a time out or I'm going to blow up. I mean, that's really kind of what he's getting at is that things are not going well. And I'm about ready to just go crazy after all these things have happened. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. There was silence and they could not find a word to say. I love this part, right? Because what's ending up happening is that he's drawing back their attention to the fact that in the nation and the rhythm of their life, slavery is something they are well aware of. They know what it's like to be oppressed. They understand what it's like to be abused and used for someone else's benefit. They lived under the confines of Egypt and they were in slavery and they were beaten and they were worked. All of those things you would think in a rational mind that they would never do the very things that were done to them. That they would be, that would be like the last thing that they would do. But here's what you need to know. Sin isn't rational. <laughs> the things that happen inside of our hearts and our own flesh take over and they, they, it's opportunistic. And so they wouldn't draw the connection that they were selling brothers and sisters into slavery for their own benefit and connect it to what happened in Egypt in their own slavery. They had forgotten the very freedom that God had afforded for them. And they looked for an opportunity to purchase that freedom for themselves. Let's look at the cross for a minute. And let's ask ourselves that very question. 
how often are we reminded inside of our own hearts about the freedom that has been purchased for us? That the reflection of Jesus on our lives and the the knowledge of how deep and dark and sinister our sin is and was. How much there was nothing that afforded God's attention in our lives. God didn't choose us or work in our lives because there was something awesome about us. We needed him to do something that we could never do. We were stuck, the Bible tells us, dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, as the author of life, saw fit to draw us to himself through the truth and the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We have been freed. We live as a rescued people. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yet, as rescued people, let me ask each and every one of us, and I have to ask myself the same question. How many of us sitting here, right here this morning, are carrying an offense because of someone who's hurt you? Just ask, how much of a backlog do you and I have in our minds of, I don't have to love you or serve you in this way because of what you've done to me? How much of our relationships are transactional? I can love you if you're lovable. It makes us forget about the reality of the cross regularly because we were unlovable and yet God saw us. He turned his gaze upon us and drew us to himself. So as a freed people, we are free to love recklessly and radically without any expectation of return. Will you get taken advantage of with that type of radical love for one another? 100%. Absolutely, you will get taken advantage of. But you don't serve because you're not getting taken advantage of. Serve because you want to honor Jesus. Because of what he's done for you. Like it is the base motive for what the Lord has called us to as a people. And so verse 9 begins to move it a little bit further. And so he said, the thing that you are doing is not good. That is the understatement of the year. Right? You're just not awesome. Well, okay. Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord, a fear of God, to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brother and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting interest, return to them the this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do it as a promise. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from the labor who is, who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, which means so let it be. And they praised the name of the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Wow. Like you're seeing this movement. So there's a, there's a calling out of sin that's both corporate sin and individual sin. And, and, and they, they stood stunned in silence that Nehemiah would actually say the thing, things that are being said and address the issues of the heart that were taking place in the, the lives and the rhythm of these people. And, and they made a commitment and a promise. And they, they did. They, they returned everything, all of the exploitation, all of the money, all of the, 
things that they had gotten on the backs of other people had been returned because they realized that it was wrong. What does the Bible tell us about that? (laughs) I would like to suggest that it's never too late to make a God-honoring decision. Many of us maybe feel like we're too far in. We're just too deep. (laughs) We've gone too far in making course corrections or honoring the Lord in those regards seems costly. Seems fearful. The shame of what we have done and coming out into the light is crippling. And so in the process of those things, I think what we get in this first portion of Nehemiah 5 is this reality that it's never too late. That that's a weapon of the enemy to convince us that somehow in some way we can manage a story that God is writing. Heads up. We're not the author of our story. Just so you know, right? There's a place of coming to this conclusion that the Lord is doing things. And so making honorable decisions as God changes and transforms our heart and convicts us of sin and addresses areas of selfishness within inside of us. It is never too late to make a God honoring decision. Thank the Lord. Like there is something so relieving and yet unsettling about that truth. Thomas Merton, and I want to read this for you, says it this way. To consider persons and events and situations only in light of their effect upon myself is to live on the doorsteps of hell. I'm going to read it again. Like You got to get this. I mean, I was like, oh, man, like I wish I had never seen this quote. To consider persons and events and situations only in light of their effect upon myself is to live on the doorsteps of hell. Like there is a sense in which selfishness is a weapon of the enemy. This thought of self-righteousness and self-preservation means there's an inaccurate understanding of really what's going on inside of our heart. The Bible calls it blindness. All of us have it. We have all of these things in our lives we don't see. But as the truth is communicated, I would pray and have prayed all week this morning that the Lord would open our eyes to those things. That as Nehemiah 5 is communicated and truth prayerfully is preached... There's a stirring, I pray, that is going on inside of our hearts. There is something before each of us, maybe confession to a spouse that we've hurt, but we've justified that hurt because they're not the person we thought that they should be. Maybe. Maybe there's gossip that's taking place at work where we've maligned a person's character because they've been mean and harsh with us. Maybe there's situations that have taken place within the context of our community or even within the context of our family where people have tried to attempt to control things and all we want to do is have a voice and nobody listens to what we're saying and and then we speak up and we do so with sinful intentions. And we've hurt people. I, I don't know. But I know that when external opposition begins to gain momentum... It's for the very reason of cultivating the internal sin that already exists. The question is, is are we allowed or willing to allow the truth of God's word to help us see what it is and why it's there? He suggests this. It's not just uh, 
a them problem. Many of us would easily identify the sin of those around us or even talk about how quickly the world is deteriorating. How many times have we said that, right? The world is in shambles. Things are a mess. The world is falling apart as a rapid clip. Thankfully, it's not because of me. But we fail to see the sin in our own lives, that it lives and breathes. We're feeding and nourishing and cultivating it in so many different aspects of our lives. And a lot of times it comes in the context of we deserve. (laughs) I should have this. I don't deserve this. There's unfairness and injustice. And certainly, please don't hear me. There are times that we do encounter an incredible amount of injustice and misunderstanding. The question is, is in the process of those things, what is the Lord cultivating in our own heart? And ultimately, I would say the purpose of all of those things is to lead us to Jesus. 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 Over and over and over again. The gospel is resonating in our hearts as the only place of safety, reliance, provision, and protection. Let me suggest this as we kind of fast forward a little bit. I'm going to move to Nehemiah chapter 6. And I'm going to look at verses 12 through 19 as kind of this story unfolds. And so you get this perspective of exploitation that is taking place in the lives and in the nation. And the rich are getting richer and the poor is getting poor. But the answer isn't Robin Hood, right? It's not somebody that's going to steal from the rich and give to the poor. The answer is God. The answer is faithfulness. The answer is is changing. It's never too late to make a God-honoring decision. And so as these things begin to happen, the conspiracies begin to mount, right? The external opposition grows. There's an increasing challenge that begins to take place, and Nehemiah's life is at stake. And then you get verses 12 through 19. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent them. So there was this conspiracy and lies that were taking place. But it pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, here he begins to pray, not as the last option, but as a first. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished. (laughs) Like it just comes out of nowhere. Right? Like you have all of this internal exploitation and sin in the lives of the people. You have all this external opposition and conspiracy and lies that are being generated. And prophets are being hired to accuse Nehemiah of all these things. There's falseness. There's injustice. There's lies. There's deceit. All of these things are taking place. But the wall was finished. The 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. And when our enemies heard it and the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Well, they're not as important as they thought they were. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, uh, the son of Era. 
And he was the son of Jehohan. All of those things make a lot of sense. And he had the daughter of Meshuzalem and uh, the son of... Man, he, I, I keep remembering that i got to listen to these words over and over again. And also he spoke the good deeds in my presence and reported my words. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. So the bullies didn't stop. But, but I want us to just consider the reality of, of verse 15. So we're seeing all of these things unfold. And, and if we just were painting a canvas of life in the lives of the nation, it would look pretty dark. It just seems like there's always something. Uh, how often have you said that in your own life? Oh, my God, it just never ends. And there's always some challenge. There's always some problem. There's always some issue. The wall was finished. 52 days. Just recently, as I was doing some exercise, I started to kind of geek out on a nutrition podcast. I don't know why. I just want to, you know, I want that. They call it like a life hack. Like I just want it to be easy is really what I was so thinking. All this information. Let's see if I can find this sort of life exercise hack that would make things easy. And so listening to this guy, his name was Ben Greenfield. And he was interviewing a guy who's gone through all of these different ups and downs. He was, he was a Marine and he was a sniper and then he went to the CIA and, and he was just describing his life was just all of these different ups and downs and twists and turns that he couldn't plan. And then, uh, so he said, you know, often, it, uh, you know, you, you get to a destination, you look back and you're like, I'm not sure how I got here, but I'm pretty cool that this is where I ended up. Ben Greenfield, I'm not sure if he's a believer or not, but here's how he described that. God draws straight with crooked lines. That's it. I mean, that's it. It's exactly what Nehemiah is talking about. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't doing some Bible study, so don't think that I'm some sort of like on the mountaintop reading the scriptures. I mean, I, I do read the scriptures, but I'm just listening to this podcast. And this comes through like it's a, a bullet train right to my heart that, that God draws straight with crooked lines. And so, all of these things that had taken place in the lives of the nation, they would, they would have described it as all of these radical twists and turns and challenges and discouragement and opposition and all of these things that never seemed to come to an end. And yet, the wall was finished. 52 days. Right? There's a sense in which the goal is not to model the behavior of Nehemiah, but to Believe in whom he believed in. If it's true in your life and mine, let's think about the practical implications of that. Your life has had numerous twists and turns. Sometimes it's because of my own sin. Sometimes, as Jared said years ago, it's dumb pain. I've done stupid stuff. Shockingly, I've made bad decisions. Sometimes it's the sin of others. Sometimes we're not sure what decision to make and we're uncertain about the way forward. Or do we change jobs or we stay in jobs or do we deal with this or not deal with all of these twists and turns. And yet here coming in this stark, clear reality, God draws straight with crooked lines. He knows where he's taking us and it's into deeper intimacy with him. And so the the, the goal is not to be fearful of the twists and turns. But what if we begun to ask ourselves, God, you, I, this, none of this makes sense. But you got to be doing something. Because God draws straight with crooked lines. Oh, church, what a, what a great thing for us to consider as we think about just how we even worship 
is that often the goal is to have life make sense to us. And this has been, honestly, at times my prayer. And why are you doing I think even the psalmist says it numerous times. I don't understand. Why are my enemies surrounding me? What are you doing in the con? I, it doesn't, I, it just doesn't compute. But uh, through the process of all of those things, it's just leading us to, to, to him. Somehow, in some way, God is drawing straight with crooked lines. I want our conclusion this morning to be communion. A practical invitation for us to trust. <laughs> to trust what? Jesus. The, the gospel. The good news about what Christ has done on our behalf. That is leading us into intimacy with him. That he's conforming us to the image of Christ. That just like we had prayed before. And Amanda mentioned in the service. Like there are treasures in jars of clay. Like there's frailty amongst every one of us. That we don't know when the next trap door or slip on the ice is going to be. But what we do know. What we do know church is that God draws straight with crooked lines. He loves and longs for us and is drawing us into his presence. And so as we tangibly consider taking communion this morning, that that is an absolute visible representation, an act of faith on our behalf to confess to one another as a community of faith. I need Jesus. More than I need anything else in this life. More than the outcomes of the situations that surround me. I I need. I I want more of Christ. I want him to resonate so real in my life. That I can trust that he's drawing straight with crooked lines. That I'm actually not train wrecking my life. That he has a plan. That even in the failures and missteps that I've done. It's never too late to make a God honoring decision. Because the God that we worship here this morning draws straight with crooked lines. Would you pray with me this morning?